Chapter Sir Geoffrey Fairchild Lisa had been back home for one full day without any visits from the FBI. It brought a slight comfort not to have them hounding her, even though she knew they were out there, unseen. The children were still distraught over the absence of their father, but how could she tell them the authorities considered her their father's murderer? They deserved to know the truth, but she just couldn't find the heart to tell them. She only asked them to pray for the Navy or Coast Guard to find their father alive and well. The local news were already calling the three missing passengers, casualties, since surviving three days in the cold Atlantic didn't look good. Pastor Bun gathered enough people to organize a prayer chain to lift up prayer for the Duquesnes every hour of the day. People from the church helped with the groceries and the daily chores around the house. With the constant activity, Lisa never felt alone. However, she still felt detached from everything as long as Sean was still missing. As some of the church members talked to Lisa, her mind wandered to Anne-Marie. It was as if Anne-Marie had disappeared off the face of the earth. She was the last surviving Fairchild from England, her siblings passing long before her, and had survived her husband by more than six years. Lisa couldn't imagine the loneliness Anne-Marie must be feeling out there all alone, running from the darkness and trying to stay one step ahead of it. She, on the other hand, was going to stand and fight. If they thought she was just going to fade away quietly, they were sadly mistaken. Hey, Mom! shouted Brad from upstairs with some urgency in his voice. Mommy, come up here. Lisa quickly ran upstairs into Brad's room not knowing what to expect. He wasn't there. Fear gripped her heart as she thought of him being abducted. Mommy, cried Brad from another room. It sounded like it came from. Lisa ran into her room, her heart beating a mile a minute. There was Brad sitting in front of his father's computer. What? said Lisa, not knowing what to say as she gasped for breath. Look at this, he said, pointing to the monitor. Lisa walked slowly to the monitor and looked. It was an email message from a Mary Ann Dutchild in Sean's email account. Should I open it? asked Brad. I've never heard of this person before. It's dated from yesterday. Maybe they know something about Dad. Yeah, she said softly, not knowing what else to say. Lisa, guess who? It's me, Anne-Marie. Found a cyber cafe here and just had to let you know that I'm fine and doing well. I'm sorry to hear about all the things happening there and wishing I was there to help out, but I have my hands full. You probably won't hear from me for a while after this note, but don't worry, I'm in good hands. Like yourself, of course. By this time, I'm sure you're back home with the kids and trying to put the pieces all together. Don't lose heart, my child. Stay strong. Everything's not what it seems all the time. We can't fully see down the road how things will turn out, but I'm sure it will. Isn't technology great? Anyway, send my love to Brad and Nicole and tell your pastor that I owe him a great deal. I love you all. Don't worry, everything will be just fine. Keep me in your prayers. Love Anne-Marie Duquesne. Concerned, Brad looked at his mother. She's not on a business trip, is she? Hoping to take Nicole's mind off things, her three teenage friends from church decided to take her to the mall. They thought buying and trying on some clothes would cheer her up. The girls talked about boys' clothes, the latest movies out, what they were going to wear when school starts and boys again. They slowly cruised the mall, stopping occasionally by several jewelry and accessory stores. And for the moment, Nicole was having a great time, as she totally forgot about her problems. It was as though everything was back to normal. 
The next store they entered was a video store. I still can't believe this was out only four months ago, and now it's on Blu-ray, said Jennifer, one of Nicole's closer friends. They had similar interests and features and could pass for sisters. Jennifer was the sister Nicole never had. It makes no sense to watch them when they come out so soon, she continued. Yeah, shouted Marilyn, like this one here. I remember when it came on TV before the Blu-ray came out. Marilyn held up the Blu-ray for Titanic. Nicole stared at it without speaking. Jennifer rushed over to Marilyn and grabbed the movie. What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? She whispered. What? Shouted Marilyn, raising her hands. Like, what's your problem? It's just a stupid movie about the... Oh, my God, she said slowly. Nicole, I am, like, so sorry. Marilyn walked over to her. I'm sorry, Nicole. Nicole nodded, then shrugged. No problem. So where should we go next? She said, changing the subject. The last thing she wanted to talk about was her father. It's almost lunchtime. Let's eat, said Kim, the last of the four. Jennifer placed her hands on her hips. Kim Lee, you're always hungry. It's a good thing I'm not a gymnast like you, or I'd have a feed bag around my neck all the time. Yeah, right, said Kim smiling. Obviously still embarrassed, Marilyn jumped at the opportunity to change the subject. Could we go to the electronics store? I want to pick up a new MP3 player. Jennifer rolled her eyes. We could do it later. But it's on the way to the food court. I'll stop in quick and meet you there. Fine, Marilyn, said Kim. They left the video store, and after a while were in front of the electronics store. They decided to wait for Marilyn after all. I know what I want. I'll be quick, Marilyn said quickly as she dashed into the store. The three waited looking at some of the displays. There were a wide variety of new and improved items. The latest were many 8K screen television sets, ranging from 13 to 27 inches. All of them were on, showing the news, but since the girls were on the other side of the glass, the sound couldn't be heard. Jennifer saw it first and tried to steer Nicole away from the store, but it was too late. Nicole caught eye of what was being showed. Images of the scorched hull of the cruise ship Love Line, passengers being interviewed, and pictures of Catherine and Cal Beckman and Sean Duquesne. Nicole quickly turned away from the store. Her eyes burned as tears flowed down her cheeks. Kim, wait here for Marilyn and meet us at the food court, Jennifer whispered. Jennifer embraced Nicole and led her away from the store. They walked slowly to the food court and sat down. Nicole tried to control her tears but couldn't. She felt as though everyone was staring at her and knew exactly who she was. The daughter of the recently deceased Sean Duquesne. He's still alive, she said with a small voice to Jennifer. Jennifer nodded. Of course, Nicole, we all know that. No, you don't understand, you're just saying that. I saw him. What? Asked Jennifer, confused. Where? Nicole remained silent. Jennifer didn't push. She knew her friend was in horrible pain about her father. She hoped Nicole didn't hear the rumors about her grandmother being a crazy cultist on the run. It was the last thing she needed, and Jennifer wasn't going to be the one to mention it to her. Jennifer stood up, went to a fast food section, grabbed some napkins, and then sat back down. Here. Thanks, said Nicole. She wiped her eyes and looked around. No one was looking at her. In a dream, she said. Excuse me. I saw my mother and my father in a dream the night before the accident, she said. You did? Yeah. What happened? 
In your dream, I mean. Nicole took a deep breath and looked at her best friend. I never told anyone what I dreamed. I told my brother that I had a nightmare, but I never told him what it was about. Jennifer waited for Nicole to continue. I was back home having breakfast. Everyone was there. Mom, Dad, and Brad. Two men dressed in black knocked down the front door and started tossing things around. Brad and me ran, of course, but Mom jumped out of her chair and started wrestling with one of the men. Jen, the men were horrible. They were at least seven feet tall and built like wrestlers. They wore sunglasses, but I could see the glow of red coming from behind it. It was horrible. Mom was holding her own against the one she wrestled and looked like she was winning, but then the other one looked at Daddy. He told him to come with him, and he didn't resist. He just stood up and walked out the door with the man. I ran after Daddy, shocked that he would do such a thing. Leaving Mom behind fighting that man wasn't like him. When I got outside, the man looked at me and smiled. A long lizard-like tongue then came flying out of its mouth at me. It would have slapped me in the face, but Daddy grabbed it before it could. When I looked at Daddy again, he was dressed in black like the man and also wore sunglasses as if he switched over to their side. The large man placed a huge hand on my father's shoulder and they disappeared. When I ran inside to tell my mother what happened, I saw her kneeling on the floor crying. She knew. The other man lay on the floor dead. Then I woke up. Jennifer blinked, then said, wow. Jen, it looked and felt so real like it was really happening. However, throughout the whole dream I knew my father was still alive somewhere out there but he's in trouble. I think he's doing what he's doing to help us. I don't know. It's weird that I had this dream just before what happened to their ship, and mommy's back with us while daddy's gone. It's like I was told something ahead of time. Yeah, that's weird, said Jennifer. I know, and I never told anyone before, so don't tell anyone. Please. You know, I want Nicole, but I do think you should tell your mother. Nicole shook her head. She has too much on her mind already with daddy gone and all. Yeah, I guess, but at least think about it, said Jennifer. Lisa didn't know how to tell her son what was really happening. He was too young to fully understand the complexity of the situation, the spiritual battle that was being waged at this time. The last thing she wanted to do was to confuse him. Spiritual confusion, now that's an interesting idiom, she thought. She looked at her son. No more lies, but only what he could handle at this time. Brad, your grandmother is on a very important trip that requires her to be more secretive than normal. She didn't even tell me everything she has to do, but believe me, for your grandmother to leave you too with Pastor Bun without much notice, tells me that it's very important. Brad looked at the message on the computer again. Did she tell you what she's doing? Some of it, but not everything. Can you talk about it? Not really. She kind of told me not to talk about it. I have to keep my word, said Lisa. But do you think she's all right? Asked Brad. Lisa rubbed her son's shoulders. Brad, God will take care of her. He's always with her and has never left her side. She'll be fine. Anne Marie relaxed on her bed in the small dinky motel she found in Montreal. She made it through the border earlier this morning, hoping she wouldn't be asked for her passport. The border guard looked at her without any interest, asked her where she was going, what her business in Canada was, and then let her through. It was the next step that would be the most difficult. How was she going to get a plane ticket and get out of the country with her passport? 
She was sure there would be agents looking for her at all national and international ports. The television was off since she no longer wanted to hear about the cruise ship tragedy. She already knew Lisa was fine and back home with the kids, Sean was still missing, and according to both the Coast Guard and Navy would soon be officially considered deceased. And Marie knew better. She didn't know where, but they were holding her son for some reason. Maybe they were trying to get to her. Remembering her last dream of how Sean's eyes were to view the journal's contents, she wondered how she was going to get the journals to him once she got it. Lord, there's so many things I just don't understand. How's any of this going to come together? The odds seem to be stacked against us, she thought. And Marie got on her knees and started praying. She knew at times when everything looked hopeless that God has already made a way for it to work out. He only requires us to walk in faith and believe he's in total control despite the overwhelming evidence that may say otherwise. Some may call it stupidity, others blind faith, but it should really be called walking in faith. Tonight, hoping there may be a last-minute passenger cancellation, and Marie planned to go to the airport and try to get a ticket from a major airline. She had to use a passport that looked nothing like her since she recently disguised her features. She hoped to avoid any agents and notified personnel who might recognize her in the airport. And Marie shook her head. Her passport had her real name on it, and she was walking into a highly secured area. If her husband were alive, he called her a fool for what she was planning. She'd been careful in her traveling up to now. Now wasn't the time to throw it out the window. And Marie opened her eyes, got up, and sat on the bed. Lord, I know that what's happened to me this far wasn't by accident. You've helped and guided me. Without your guidance, I know I'd never have made it this far. I would be a fool to question you now. But I'm taking this step in faith because I don't know what to do. Later that night, and Marie entered the major airport in Montreal, clutching her travel bag and praying to herself. She didn't know what to expect as her heart threatened to leap from her chest. Trying not to look suspicious, she glanced around nervously to see if anyone was watching her. No one was. She slowly walked over to the British Airways check-in and waited patiently on line until it was her turn. She took a deep breath. Moment of truth, she thought as she walked up to the female attendant. The seven mighty angels that always stayed with Anne-Marie stared at the attendant. The angel closest to the attendant bent down, bringing his enormous ten-foot height down to the attendant's five-foot-six frame. His eyes were so close to the attendant's that its flames nearly touched the woman. He then breathed onto the woman's eyes and ears, and then smiled. Hi, said Anne-Marie. I'm Anne-Marie Duquesne and I'm hoping to get a seat on your next flight to London. I'll wait to see if anyone cancels. And marie was nearly out of breath as she talked to the attendant. Can I see a form of identification, a passport? asked the attendant. Sure. And marie produced the passport, then held her breath. The woman looked at the passport, then at Anne-Marie. Miss Holly Claris, do you also have a driving license? I, what? A driver's license, ma'am, said the attendant. Oh, yes, of course. And marie handed both over. The attendant looked at the documents. Miss Claris, I don't want to make any promises, but there are at least ten other people ahead of you hoping to make the next flight. Would you like to consider another flight? Confused, Anne-Marie looked at the woman. She's young, don't wear any glasses, and seems intelligent. Why was she? What did you call me? Asked Anne-Marie. Um, said the woman. She looked at the passport again. You do pronounce your name, Claris, don't you? 
Yes, yes, Anne Marie said quickly. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. Somehow, the woman saw her as someone else. Fine. All right. Would you like to try a later flight? I still can't promise. No, no thank you, said Anne-Marie quickly. I'll stick with this flight. The attendant shrugged, returned Anne-Marie's passport and license, and processed the information. Gate 7, Miss Claris. The attendant there will let you know of your status for the flight. Have a nice evening. Thank you, said Anne-Marie, picking up her bag. Amazed by what had just happened, she started to believe that this was just the beginning of a miracle. As the seven enormous angels walked with Anne-Marie, one of them made a motion with his hand and the other six dispersed throughout the terminal. Wherever there was a camera, security officer, undercover agent, flight attendant, pilot, anything or anyone associated in identifying Anne-Marie, an angel was there breathing on the person, altering his or her perception. The speed in which it was done defied all logic since both the number of items breathed on and the distance covered were all done within a second. Anne-Marie stopped behind several people waiting to go through the metal detector when one of the guards glanced at her and told her to walk around. She looked around, wondering if the guard was talking to her. The guard nodded. Very funny, Captain Falk, said the guard. If you want to be scanned, go right ahead. Anne-Marie shrugged, walked around the metal detector, and saluted the guard. The guard laughed, shrugging her off. She then walked toward Gate 7 with her unseen angelic escorts and waited again in another line for passengers. When she made it to the attendant, the man asked for her ticket and two forms of identification. She handed him her license and passport. I don't have a ticket yet, she said. Thank you, Dr. Klein, said the attendant. Everything seems to be in order. We'll let you know when you can enter the plane with the other first-class passengers. I. Not to worry, sir said the attendant, anticipating a question. The seat next to you is vacant as you requested. I do hope your flight will be as comfortable as it's always has been when you've flown British Airways. Thank you, said Anne-Marie slowly. How many different people did she seem to everyone? It was almost too much to fathom. It's as though everyone's perceptions were altered, giving them a false vision of what was really occurring. Anne-Marie sat down in a section far away from most of the passengers and reflected on the past minutes in the terminal. After five minutes, one of the pilots stood next to her. Excuse me, Dr. Klein, he said in a forced servant-like voice. You can make yourself comfortable in the plane now. I'll escort you. My name is Captain Falk. Anne-Marie looked up at the pilot, expecting someone to be joking with her. However, to her surprise as she read his name badge, it was the real Captain Falk. If there's a real Captain Falk, then there must be a real Dr. Klein, she thought. She looked around the waiting room, nervously expecting to see the real Dr. Klein somewhere. Captain Falk picked up on Anne-Marie's nervousness. Doctor, he said, please be assured that we are expecting calm winds all the way to London. We're also letting you into first class before the other passengers so you can make yourself comfortable. Anne-Marie nodded. Your bag, asked Captain Klein, pointing to her travel bag. She nodded again. Let me take it for you. The two walked into the airplane and to Anne-Marie's first-class seat. The captain gave the bag to a male steward and sternly told him he was personally responsible for Dr. Klein's complete comfort during the flight. Anne-Marie sat down, still nervous about the real Dr. Klein showing up. Little did she know that five miles from the airport a limousine sat on the shoulder of a major highway with three blown tires, 
while a frantic Dr. Klein screamed at the driver to get another limo ASAP before he missed his flight. Anne-Marie closed her eyes and tried to relax. She jumped when she heard a clinging sound in front of her. The male steward named Stu, how ironic, looked at her nervously. I have your regular pre-flight drink for you, sir. A martini with an olive. She relaxed. What's your name? Stu. Stu Lode, sir. I'm so sorry to disturb you. If you're not ready for your drink, it can wait. Stu, I'm fine. Don't worry. Dump the martini and give me a glass of mineral water, please. Stu snapped at attention as if he was in the military. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. And Marie sipped her mineral water for 15 minutes before the other first-class passengers boarded. Some of them looked at her, wondering why she was so special to be seated before them. Others just went about their business making themselves comfortable before the flight. There were immediate demands for the meal and personal movie selections, while others demanded drinks to calm their nerves. And Marie avoided eye contact with the other passengers. The last thing she wanted to do was to start a conversation. Is everything all right, sir? Anne-Marie looked up to see Stu again. Um, can I see the movie and meal options? Yes, sir, said Stu, rushing away. Several of the passengers looked at Anne-Marie curiously. Who was she to get special attention like that? One of the passengers, obviously perturbed by this special treatment, stopped Stu, making some demands. Stu apologized to the passenger, pointed to another steward, and left. Once the plane was fully boarded, and after the typical safety precautions and the captain's pre-flight speech, the plane made its way to the runway and took off without a hitch. Everyone relaxed once the plane reached its cruising height and the seatbelt sign went off. It would be some time before the meal was served, so Anne-Marie closed her eyes to relax and quickly fell asleep. It didn't take long for her to start dreaming. In the dream, Sir Geoffrey Fairchild sat quietly at his desk on the ship. The relentless sound of the rain beating against the deck and the constant rocking of the ship reminded him of how fragile life was. He was on his way back home from a very long fact-finding expedition and couldn't wait to see his family again. They must have gotten bigger during his year-and-a-half absence. He looked at the ceiling and took a deep breath. Life as he knew it was totally flipped upside down from what he discovered during the trip. I don't know what to think anymore, he thought to himself. I can't believe it, but the evidence says otherwise. How I wish I could re-enter the past and my innocence. I didn't want this. I didn't ask for it. I don't know what to do with this. It's almost like biting the forbidden fruit and being invoked with the knowledge of good and evil. This knowledge I have can't and shouldn't be buried away somewhere. People have to know. But I know the consequences and don't know if I can condemn my family to that. They deserve a normal life, not to live a life of a gene clawed. Fairchild thought of the journals he kept during this long period of fact-finding from two continents, Africa and South America. The words he wrote were both revealing and powerful. They would shake the world if placed in the right hands. But then again, he thought of the powerful influences taking shape in the world. He was only one man. What could one man do? He just prayed he wasn't so obvious in his search for the truth. If he caught their attention, the consequences would be fatal. A powerful light engulfed the room, blinding Fairchild. He shielded his eyes with both hands to no avail. The light seemed to shine through everything. Child of God, do not despair. God is well pleased with what you have done, said a soft voice that seemed to originate all around Fairchild. Why, who are you? he asked. I am an angel sent from God to minister to you. 
Fairchild listened to the words carefully. If this had happened to him several years ago, he would have thought he was having a mental breakdown and that this was all a horrible delusion. However, from what he most recently uncovered, he knew it was truly an angel from God. A multitude of questions came to mind, wondering why God would allow so many horrible things to occur. You will soon understand, said the angel. You heard me? Fairchild already knew the answer, so the angel didn't respond. It makes no sense, Fairchild continued. Why did God give him such power? Why did he stop him? Surely he could. Old child of God, God is all in all. He is everything and everything is him. He is the beginning and the end. He holds the creation of the whole universe in his hands. Do not fall into the snare of doubt and regret, lest you too fall from the grace of his love. For it is written that his thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways his ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than your ways, and his thoughts than your thoughts. The light was still blinding Fairchild as the angel recited from the book of Isaiah chapter 54, verses 8 and 9, the verses he knew all too well. These were the verses he tried to remind himself of every day on his expedition. Of course, he couldn't help but to question why, but the level of deceit and manipulation he had uncovered disturbed him. Why are you your angel, and why can't I see you? Your eyes have seen and recorded much, Sir Geoffrey Fairchild. You need see no more. What? You have seen the seeds of the evil one on the earth. You have touched the foul results of his efforts. You now understand the war that wages on throughout the ages and have dedicated yourself to the light and not the darkness. For that, God has blessed you by taking away your sight this night. For this night, you will be called, said the angel. Take away my sight, he mumbled. You mean make me blind? Why would God do that to me? Why would he stop me from warning others of what I found? Doesn't he want me to help stop this madness? In a way you will. You have done well by hiding your journals, for you will never see them again. It is not by your hands to use what is in them but another. That other has the means to spread its words throughout the earth. Who? Nobody else has seen what I've seen. They'll never believe it. The evidence of evil throughout time, the way man has been manipulated and lied to, and the people who pledge their lives to keeping man in darkness. They're masters of deceit. Foul things pit against the truth that, it is written, the angel interrupted. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Listen carefully, child of God. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brother, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. I have come to give you this message of hope during your hour, that all is well and has been so before the beginning of time. Are you Gabriel? Dear God, what hour? Gabriel remained silent. What hour, Gabriel? Fairchild still saw the powerful light that blinded him, but wondered if the mighty angel was still there. Then it dawned on him. His sight was taken away from him as a blessing. How could blindness be a blessing? He thought. I, I can't see. No, it can't be. Lord, tell me it's not true. Why would you do such a thing? A gust of wind and a door slamming shut. Gabriel, Gabriel, is that you? 
Their child heard something shatter on the floor. Who's there? Identify yourself, he demanded. He heard drawers being opened and closed, things being tossed about, and a low mutter. Fairchild hadn't noticed it before, but there was a distinct smell of decay in the room. It smelled of death. Where is it? Said a low moaning voice directly in front of Fairchild. Fairchild instinctively stepped back when hearing the voice. He knew what the voice had to be. There was no doubt in his mind. I said, where is it? It shouted. Something was smashed near Fairchild sending fragments and splinters of wood flying in all directions. What? said Fairchild as he felt hot, damp breath on his face. You can't see, can you? it said. Fairchild shuddered as the stench of the thing's breath offended his nostrils. No matter. Listen to my voice then. If you do not reveal the location of the journals to me, we'll kill your wife and family one by one. It'll be a slow, torturous death, and your poor children, a shame they'll never live long enough to enjoy life. No, Fairchild screamed. Geoffrey, Geoffrey, surely you understand the gravity of the situation. You found things that need to remain hidden. We don't need you messing things up, the voice shouted, smashing something else in the room. It's a shame you can't see me. It's been what you've been looking for all along. Hasn't it? Hasn't it? It shouted. I don't have them, pleaded Fairchild. Well, that much is obvious, said the voice, more ominous than before. Fairchild felt a cold, strong hand around his neck. The hand was huge and scaly with large nails at the end of each finger. Then tell me where it is. You'll never find them, he muttered as the grip around his neck tightened and he felt his feet leaving the floor. Wrong answer. I'm not very patient with your kind. If you don't give me what I want, I'll end this right now, the evil creature growled. The beast was slowly strangling Fairchild by lifting him off the floor. Fairchild didn't know what was going to happen to his family. That was in God's hands. The only thing he knew was he had a responsibility to the rest of the world deceived by these beasts. He couldn't let his journals be destroyed, he just couldn't. No, he managed to squeeze from his lips before hearing the snap of his neck. The beast released him, allowing him to fall to the floor. Fairchild felt his life failing as he heard the beast again. We'll find it eventually. We always do. You haven't been the first. I'm sorry, thought Fairchild to his family. He was sorry he couldn't be with them and that they had to endure his death. Anne-Marie opened her eyes and wiped the tears away. She looked at her watch and realized she had been asleep for an hour. She blinked several times to clear her eyes. Thank you, Lord. I always wanted to know what happened to my dad, she whispered to herself.